0: Today's episode is brought to you by BlockFills, powering digital trading. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Vincent Delawar, Director of Global Macro Strategy at Stone X Global. Vincent, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Very happy to get just catch up with you. I love your work and man, you've been a lately, so I'm on it. Thank you. I've been putting out a lot of content. I don't really, I make a lot of macro calls, any macro calls. So hard for me to be on a tear. You do make macro calls and that, Vincent, let me just say, it's a very tough business because you could be the best in the world and 55% of the time you're still wrong, but you are on a tear. You have had a hot hand. Vincent, last year, let's say the summer, the fall of 2023, everyone and their mother was forecasting recession in the US in 2023. You stood in the very small camp of people who said, actually, no, there's going to be not a hard landing, not even maybe a soft landing, there's going to be no landing. And that view, Vincent, has aged extremely well. Real GDP is now casted by the Atlanta Fed for the third quarter to be, I think, 5.8% real GDP growth. So incredible, robust resilience. I don't know if those words are strong enough. And yet, Vincent, now that the consensus has moved to your side of the camp, is it my understanding that you actually think that there will be a recession in 2024, and your growth expectations are lower than the consensus. Do I have that right?
1: Directionally, yes, but I'm not sure I am quite ready to make the call for the 2024 recession. Let's just say that it's something, as you mentioned, in in late 2022, I was like, no, there's not going to be a recession. Even after the the regional banking crisis, I thought people were jumping again too fast. So I want to be mindful not to make a call before I have all the relevant data. All I can point to is that a lot of the reasons that helped the economy withstand 2023 are going to turn. I call it the stealth stimulus. There was about a a trillion dollar that somehow economists missed. Uh, A trillion dollar stimulus that 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 really helped the economy this year. And a lot of that is going to reverse in 2024. The reason I'm not confident enough to make the recession call is because I, I think we've been surprised by the resilience of the economy many times before. I have this view of the great reset, that we are—we have reset to a higher level of growth, high level of inflation, high level of rates. And in this context, what may have caused a recession before may not be enough. So for now, I will stick with the idea that we're going to have a slowdown, which I think from an asset allocation perspective is probably all that matters. And then we'll jump again in 2024 when the data actually comes in. We'll see. We also have a lot of political uncertainties there. But I'm certainly a lot less optimistic on U.S. growth than I was six months ago.
0: So I want to ask you about that trillion dollars of stealth stimulus. But first, what do you mean we
1: say a great reset? 2010s, we had a period of low growth, low inflation, low rates. And I think this was primarily because of the dominance of monetary policy over fiscal policy. That's a driver, that and demographics. And I think we had the exact opposite situation in 2020s, dominance of fiscal policy monetary policy is subservient and will be increasingly. And when fiscal policy dominates, that tends to be pro growth, pro rates, pro inflation. And, and I would actually argue that's a good thing. It's the economy trying to lead itself. I think that's one of the originalities of my view when it comes to inflation is that I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sell gold bars or scare people in, in thinking that the world is ending. I've never thought the 2% target was a, <laughs> a particularly smart invention. <laughs> it's somewhat arbitrary. And at times, it should probably move. And as long as it doesn't move too high, too fast, we seem to have avoided, there was a risk last year. Yeah, I think the economy will be okay. We'll have better growth, better generational relation, better, maybe even less inequalities at the end of the decade. The only problem, of course, will be for asset prices because obviously the world looks very different if you're talking about sustained long term rate of 5%. I just meant a permanently higher plateau where I think economic expansions will be longer, recessions will be shorter. And the main problem, in 2010, we had underemployment of resources, right? We didn't have enough investment. We didn't have enough labor. And we had the opposite problem. We should seen economy, right? We have too much investment, too few workers. And that's going to be the constraint on the economy. So that's what I learned by the way
0: Okay. So, yeah, the past decade after the Great Financial Crisis, high unemployment low inflation, and the next decade will be a reversal of that. Vincent, what is the stealth stimulus that all the economists missed when they were forecasting a recession? A trillion dollars was in the economy that you noticed and tracked, but most economists didn't. What did that comprise of? What contributed to it? And then why is it going to be no longer the stealth stimulus
1: Yeah, I think the reason I paid more attention to these things is, again, because my focus is on fiscal. I've always been a believer that fiscal policy is it is way more important, at least when it comes to economic growth, not necessarily asset prices, but economic growth and monetary policy. And I think most economists have their eyes on the Fed and then and, and monetary policy and QT and all that stuff. So they, I don't know, you remember you a YouTube video where you see a bunch of basketball players passing the ball around and you look at the ball and you don't see the gorilla that's crossing the field. That, to, to me, everybody's watching the ball, which was Jay Powell, and then the gorilla was, what's going on with fiscal. So let's break down the numbers. The first thing that happened was actually announced on October 15, 2022, which was not concurrently the day of the stock market bottom. And it was a cost of living adjustment for Social Security of 8.5%. Now, there are you know, 67 million people getting Social Security, about $1.2 trillion in annual spending. So you slap almost a 9% <laughs> increase on that. That's $100 billion. That, that, and that gets credited at the end of the month, and everybody's checking account. And keep in mind that these are people who own their homes. Typically, I think the median benefit is around two thousand bucks. So it's not like giving money to Jeff Bezos. Where what are you going to do with it? But that was another issue with the past ten years. The wealth effect is not very powerful. But if you give people to money to lower class or middle class people, it actually gets spent. So a hundred billion there. The Second thing was the exact same mechanism. So the reason core preserving adjustment was so high was because it was based on inflation last year, which was very high. And that's, by the way, maybe you'll get into my theory of ways of inflation, but I think that's one of the reasons why we have these wave patterns, because we have some, many things are indexed on inflation, but with a lag. So when inflation falls and you get the, the adjustment based on the passive high inflation, you get an actual stimulus and that reignites a second wave of inflation. So social security works like that. The other thing that works like that is is the tax brackets, right? So when you have high inflation, typically if you do not move the brackets, you have something called bracket creep. Because $110 is the new $90, you switch to a higher bracket, and the government gets more. Which happened in 2021-2022, where you had this huge boom in tax receipts. But in 2023, they adjusted the brackets by 7.5%. Effectively, that was a tax cut. That was almost as big as a Bush tax cut. Just from the bracket adjustment, which was, again, much higher than inflation, Right, 7.5% in bracket adjustment, inflation now is about 3%. That's the second one. But the third reason, I think this one economists got it, of course, because it was obvious was the, the chips and IRA spending package. Between the two, you have about 500 billion. Let's say they spend 150, So that's Congress, yeah. CHIPS Act, and
0: the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. I almost the fat pitch economist notice, but just to explain the first two Social Security and other programs in the US, they're cost of living adjustments. So they're adjusted for inflation. So when inflation goes up, the, how much money you 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 get every two weeks or every month it goes up as well. And it was adjusted for seven percent in 2020. 8.5%, 8. 8. 8. thank you, in 2023, even though inflation, it was lagging from the huge oil spike of 2022. So actual realized inflation for this year probably is going to be 3 or 4%. So there was so a, real know, inflation adjusted 5, a real inflation-adjusted increase. 5% really which It's huge. Yeah, 5% really increase. Thank you. And then this t- income tax bracket adjustment, I haven't heard about this before re- reading your work. If you make $50,000 and then because of inflation, you get a wage increase to $60,000, you'll be in a new tax bracket. I'm just making the numbers up. And so you'll actually pay more in taxes. But if you if the government raises the tax brackets, which they did last year, that is a that huge tax. doesn't get taxed. Yes, that is a huge tax cut. So actually, is it tax cuts raising the tax brackets that's equivalent to the twenty eighteen Trump tax cuts? That's what you found. More that than, is astounding yes.
1: statistic. Yes, because it was more. It was more inflation, right? It was a real gain for workers, which in a way offset yeah. a real loss in twenty twenty two. Again, it's always relaxed. So that's why when inflation is volatile, it, this volatility is like echoes. You scream and you hear your voice. back. That that will carry through for many years. Yeah, so it so, wasn't a tax cut. It was a
0: not a tax creep hike in nominal terms, but actually nominal wages went up. So in real terms, it was a some, some effective tax cut.
1: Yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And then, so yeah, the chips and IRA. So it's basically all the, the fabs that we're building in Ohio, in Texas. And the way these bills, especially the Chips Act, are passed is a, a huge incentive for companies to front load if they want to maximize the value of the tax rate. So they, they really studied up. Usually, fiscal spending comes with a lab. Like the, I still remember the shovel ready stimulus of Obama in online. But here, it actually worked. It was well, well, well designed. And you've certainly seen it in if you look at the mm-hmm. private sector, non-residential investment through the roof this year. So that was the third one. The fourth one is the, the, it's almost an empty argument, but which is valid, is when you raise rates and you have the Fed that pays interest on in its balance sheet, you're effectively creating money. So the Fed between, there's about 3.5 trillion in bank reserves, 1.5 trillion in the RRP. So 5 trillion gets credited every time the Fed increases rates, they have. The Fed has to pay more on this on the other side of its balance sheet, and five trillion at five percent—that's one fifty billion in interest—that that, that money creation that you didn't have in twenty twenty two or even zero. And then the last part of the stealth stimulus is the uh, the Treasury channel. So that again, the interest expense of the U.S. Treasury increases, the servicing cost of the debt increases. It's now the, in the second or third largest fiscal spending area of the budget, ten percent of the budget, and yeah refinancing your debt at 5.5% versus refinancing it at 2% makes a big difference. And effectively, it's a transfer from the public sector to the private sector. You can think of it as almost a UBI for the wealthy. People who have money market accounts, CDs, just straight out treasuries, just making more money by the magic of fiat. Yeah. And
0: the Federal Reserve, there's something about so many of the Federal Reserve's assets are low-yielding assets bought in 2020 and 2021 from quantitative easing. And now, so they're, that's what they're getting on their asset side. On the liability side, they're paying very short-term liabilities, reverse repo,
1: excess reserves, that type of stuff. Now, if, if the Fed was a commercial bank, it would be SVB. Yeah, Silicon Valley bank. They bought a bunch of mortgage-backed securities and Treasuries in 2020, 2021. That's when the big increase in energy was. They were getting paid 1.5% on that. And then the liability side of the balance sheet resets actually faster than SBB because as soon as they increase the Fed funds rate, they pay that on excess reserves or they pay that on the, the, uh, the reverse report rate on the RFP. Now, the big difference with SVB, of course, is that the depositors can, can, there's no alternate Fed they can turn to and they don't have, they, they don't have to balance the book. And they don't, by the way. If you look, there's just a plug on the Fed's balance sheet that short has been circulating on it. it. On the remittances due to the treasuries which used to be like they would used to be like a quite a good amount of seniorage income every year and that like, that represents net payment from the public sector
0: yes and if you think of quantitative easing as a stock buyback for the government yes. which it is if you merge treasury and fed which they're yes. not the same and mt likes to do that which i sometimes have an issue with <laughs> but it's about the price at which you buy back if you're a Overvalued stock doing a stock buyback, it's not good for the intrinsic value of the business. But if you're an undervalued stock, you want to buy back the stock. So if you buy back US treasuries at an intentionally overvalued level, you know, when interest rates are at 1%, or the 10-year treasury is at 1% or short-term interest rates are at 0%, and then they go to 5%. So if you do QE when it, you know, the 10 years at 1% and you do QT when it's at 5%, that is a bad for the fiscal yes. coffers of the US government, but right. what's bad for the fiscal coffers of the US government is good for
1: the private sector. It's good for sector. the economy, yeah, it's, it's yeah. stimulating. Yeah, and that's the reason why this is, the deficit is so much larger than people thought it would be, you know, because you had all these sources of extra spending that they didn't count for. They're almost running a trillion dollar in surplus, which is, oh, sorry, certain deficit, in excess deficit compared to what the CBO has in the baseline, which is where I get my number from. And yeah, a trillion dollar that, that will keep the economy going. So this is hidden stimulus, but what
0: about the tightening effect that everyone anticipated from higher rates and quantitative tightening, but mainly higher rates? Of oh, when interest rates are at zero percent and a mortgage costs three percent, there's going to be a lot of housing activity, a lot of realtors, a lot of building. When it, they raise rates to five percent and mortgage rates go to seven percent, that's going to be a freeze. It's going to be a freeze on interest sensitive sectors, housing, autos, and when you raise rates, you slow down the economy. Has that happened? Did it happen, but not by as much? And are you in the camp, Vincent, of, oh, yes, we've gotten all of the interest rate hikes, the whole variable lag, you know, all the effects have already been seen, or are there still effects of that tightening that are going to come in the pipeline?
1: More of the latter. I-, I laugh when you mention long and variable lags because it's one of these overused sentences. You know, <laughs> like when does that even mean? <laughs> it's like whenever I hit power, like, oh, the long and variable lags. Or- yeah, eventually you will have a recession. But uh, by the way, but I, I make fun of it, but I know they will be right at some point. I'm not claiming that you can tighten policy by 500 basis points in 12 months and just whistle past it. So yeah, it's going to happen now. You have many guests on, on, on your podcast explaining why it hasn't have, ha- happened as fast as it normally have. It's probably because people refinance so much of their liability in 2020, 2021, when rate was so low. They had this incredible liquidity position and by the way, <clears throat> I think this is why one mistake that, that we made is I think a lot of that recession crowd was looking at 2018 as a precedent and then, okay, when was hiking and then it, it broke things, like, you know, 2, 2% on the front end, and not that high. So, oh, the economy cannot take higher rates because we're highly leveraged and that's a price dependent and all that stuff. There's a key difference between 2018 and 2022 is that we had this 5 trillion of stimulus Happening at the same time and this massive refinancing boom. So the people were a lot less constrained uh, by, by these rates and they had the ability to wait out. Just see that in the real estate market, people are not selling their homes because if they had to sell, they'd lose the 2.5% mortgage to refinance that and have to take 7.5. So in a weird way, that actually stimulates new homes, right? Because all the demand now goes on new homes, that creates a construction boom, that accelerates the economy. Now it's eventually people get divorced, people die. Change jobs. So things will reset. And that's kind of part of my case for 2024. At some point, it will matter. Same thing if you get the corporate side, the duration of junk bonds on average about four years. So we have this big issuance spike 2020, 2021. You're going to have to refinance a lot of that 2024, 2025. And this is when you jump interest expense. And it's going to be huge. And then maybe then you'll have the margins we get squeezed even more than they are now, and people will have to fire employees. and so it, it will happen, but just I think people are the timing of it little completely wrong.
0: And so, how does that? Imp- so, do you, th- you think there's a lot of tightening that's still in the pipeline from 500 basis points? So, does that mute your outlook on economic growth? You so you think that's why you think the economy will slow?
1: Yeah, so that's one reason. I and I don't think it's the major reason. It's the opposite of what we discussed about the stealth stimulus, right? So. 2023 we are falling inflation coming from high inflation so you had real gain from your cola and your income tax bracket adjustment yeah. i suspect 2024 is going to be the exact other way right now we are it's a miracle right? inflation is gone right <laughs> I, I don't believe that but at yeah, least yeah, the least the cpi was at 3% in june so everything i think the yeah the, the cola stuff is going to be announced very soon and it's going to be around 2.5% that's cost of uh, adjustment Yes, yeah. yes. I don't know what the bracket is going to be, but it's something like that. My base case is that inflation will reaccelerate to 4 or 5%, which I think is where it really is, always has been, always you know, it will be for the next five years. So we'll have the opposite effect in 2024. We'll have people having less of a pay increase, less of a tax cut. So that will squeeze their income a little bit. And we'll also have, on the fiscal side, we'll still see the spending, but... Remember, on the fiscal policy, it's really the impulse, right? The delta. So the delta was huge. Now we just keep doing what we're doing before. So the delta will be close to zero. The Fed's payment on its liabilities, if the, if the Fed does cut rates, like the market's pricing, that's going to drop. Uh, so you have all these sources that are going to reverse. Another one that I, I wanted to mention, which I found pretty interesting. Look at spending, state-level state spending in California, Florida, South Carolina, and Michigan this year and last year. And I'm not taking these states as random. They all have governors that are, two of them are waiting for Joe Biden to die, two of them are waiting for Donald Trump to go to jail (laughs) and to run. So in all these four states, spending in Florida was up 41% last year state spending. In California, it was 2022, it was up like 50%. Same thing in South Carolina. What's the spending going, where's the spending going? I'd say buying votes. But no, this is pay raises. I mean, Florida—they had a big increase in in civil servant wages. California, where's this? I I don't know. You have, I think, 50 million Californians asking the same question: Where do my taxes go? I don't think anyone has the answer here. It's it's been a great mystery. But the money certainly goes. The point is, you had all these governors who were preparing their run, and then 2024, of course, (laughs) they're gonna have to squeeze it in, right, to get it out. So that's another part of the stimulus that's gonna go away.
0: How have you made sense of this momentous stock market rally? So I guess economic growth has been a lot better than expected and inflation has fallen. Is
1: it more complicated than that? I'm afraid not. I must say I've missed that. I think now I like the way the market has been acting in the past month or so. But I thought going into 2023, I thought, okay, the economy is going to do well, but rates are going to have to go higher. And if rates are 5% on the two years and 4.5% on the 10 years, it didn't make sense to me that we'd have a 21 month on the S and 500, but it did. And, and I think it's this, it, it, it boils on ultimately about the path of inflation. Like the market, I think, was able to rally because the narrative was, this was the immaculate inflation. right? Inflation is going to slow, growth is going to remain strong. And, and yeah, if inflation never comes back, yeah, it's great. Wonderful. GDP now is 5, 5.8%. Inflation is at 3%. We're in the best of all worlds. So in that world, yeah, maybe you should pay 400 times, for years earnings. I don't know. My view is that this is not the world we live in. Eventually, this inflation dynamic will come back and you'll need the loan rates to move higher. And that will really put pressure on valuations. And I think that's what we are seeing right now.
0: I'm here today to tell you about Blockfills, a crypto trading solutions and financial technology firm founded in 2018. Since then, Blockfills has been ushering institutional investors into the digital assets marketplace with their array of services, providing liquidity, prime lending, their over-the-counter desk, which is prolific, their industry-leading SaaS suite, and their market leading electronic trading venue, which provides unprecedented speed, ability, and flexibility. Importantly, Blockville's electronic trading venue has no hidden fees and offers much better connectivity, pricing, and technology. That's why it's the premier destination for liquidity providers and professional consumers in digital assets. Learn more at blockvilles.com trading. Thanks. And let's get back to the interview. Why do you think inflation fell so rapidly and why do you think it won't continue? Tell us about the second wave of inflation coming.
1: I like to distinguish between inflation and the CPI with everything, whether it's, we have the measure and the reality that, that we're trying to measure, and we try to make the measure as, as close a fit, but the measure is always a measure. It's not a reality. When I think about inflation, I think of it more holistically as a social, political, economic, cultural, generational phenomenon that plays out over over decades. And I that's why I believe we're in a high-inflation environment. Now, in that high-inflation environment, in every high-inflation there are periods of disinflation, period of re inflation as measured by the CPI. And we are in a period when the CPI is falling. In, in some ways, it's falling. The fall is as as fake as the rise to 9%. When we're going to 9% last summer, it was because of the Russian invasion, base effect, the used car prices, airline tickets, a lot of idiosyncratic factors. And then these idiosyncratic factors reversed. So we went from 9% to 3%. But if you look at the super sticky stuff, which to me is, is wages at the end of the day, that, inflation to me is, is the marginal cost of labor and wages have been going at four or five percent for about three years now and i think that's a healthy thing that's a very good thing and i think it will continue now the cpi may not reflect that right away because as everybody knows this shelter is 50 cpi and it's live near yada one thing i would point though is that healthcare suffers from many of the same biases as shelter but people don't talk about it as much and shelter Healthcare, the opposite effect of shelter. So right now, shelter is falling and we keep falling. I think healthcare has been right now. There's supposedly disinflation in the healthcare supply. Healthcare is cheaper in the US now than it was last summer, which you know, is not true. <laughs> it's all statistical quirks, and that's going to go away in November. That that would be one possible driver for inflation to come back. Maybe you get another two or three good prints, and then inflation the starts to pick up again. And yeah,
0: b- base effects are when you measure something on a year-over-year basis, it you get cer- certain quirks. In June of 2023, the Consumer Price Index, which includes oil as a huge and volatile component, was only, I don't know, you tell me, three, three, 3%, pretty close to there, of an increase, but... True inflation is actually a lot higher on a month over month basis, three month change over change. It just so happens that a year ago, the price of, or in June 2022, the price of oil was at 120 bucks. That's the most dramatic example of it. So, going forward, what is shaping your outlook that inflation is going to re accelerate
1: and remain high? In large part, it's historical experience. And so, I've had a bit of fun with the Bank of England data. They just published 1,500 years of economic data, the grain of salt, Black plague. Trade balance, I'm not sure, <laughs> but anyway, still fun to. One of my issues a lot in the yield curve conversation. Anyway, right? you testing this on on, on ten recessions. <laughs> you have a, a million possible indicators, and and you test them on on, on ten. Generally, I think the big problem. One reason why you know so much of finance is talking heads and not scientific is because the inability to test on samples, which is why for its flaws are like the, the, the long-term data that the UK has. And so I, I was I wanted it as a hypothesis. I and I looked at it and you know so the, I think a couple of hundred inflation episodes, I found this very sine like wave pattern for inflation. So you have one shock and then two years later a shock, three years later another one. Now, the relative size of the shocks may be different. In the 70s, they were ascending waves, right? 71, that would go up the dollar. The, the dollar center was the first wave. 73, the first shock shock. 79 is the big one. So three ascending waves. In in the 40s, in the U.S., we have the first wave when the U.S. mobilized for war. Second wave, when the price control go off after victory. Third wave, when the Korean War picks up. And then post-Korean War recovery, we, we have it. But... The point is you always see these little waves. Um, I can mean, go back to, for example, one like, I looked like, as I like that period, was the war of Spanish succession because of, that corresponds to the from, founding of the Bank of England. And there you have also five successive waves over 10 years. So that's the main reason why we did it because historically, that's why inflation doesn't, especially now that we have these effects that I was talking about, since we indexed up on inflation and there's this lag building in the adjustment, you, you repeat. It's almost if you look at demographic pyramids, like the missing generation of the war, and then 25 years later, you have a missing generation because the kids haven't been born from the parents who are dead. It's the same thing with inflation here. And what I find stunning is that the swap market is not pricing that at all. Uh, you look at break-evens, you look at swaps, there's there no second wave. Uh, and it would be very unusual for inflation not to have this kind of wave like
0: that. Yeah, so it's, it's swaps, inflation, break-evens, those are market expectations or market pricing for what inflation will be in the future. I think the market is as young as 2004. So literally five years younger than Bitcoin. When people talk about it, it's not like they're taking about their ancient finance book that's been this storied thing. And obviously, the tips market exceptionally wrong in 2021 when it forecast inflation break evens to be 2%, 3%. It was not 9%, which it actually was. And then what was I going to say? So yeah, we can. if we haven't already, we can put up that chart of Looking at your regression, your analysis of Bank of England data, when inflation goes up to 7%, what does the following months look like? And when inflation goes to 7%, on average, it declines quite sharply. But after that, it stays somewhat elevated. And this effect actually is not tremendous from 1200 to 1918. But in, since 1918, inflation, you've had a multiple echo of peaks after spikes. So it peaks and then it goes down, but then it peaks again.
1: It, it would not have escaped the scrutiny that for much of that period, the, the, gold standard. The, the gold standard. And also, I am looking at the more serious global bank, the, the, the pound being the global reserve currency. and, and You could say that Napoli, or I would actually put that even before. So I'm looking at actually a very serious central bank issuing a very good currency, if I included Latin America in my sample or recent Europe, you see even crazier waves. So, even in the best of times, when you are, you issue the wars of cancer, you tie to gold, and your Navy rules the oceans, you
0: still feel it's back. But the market is not pricing. The market is pricing in a stubborn return to, to, to
1: 2%. We don't see how we don't have inflation at 4%, 5%. It's a fiscal argument at the end of the day. I mean, from emerging markets, finance people know that if you want to keep a stable debt-to-GDP ratio, you need nominal growth uh, to equal your, your deficit, right? Because otherwise, your deficit goes faster than GDP. So over time, your, your debt explodes, you pay more on in your interest, and you get these kind of debt spirals. Like Argentina has every five years. In the US, what is our structural deficit right now? It's 6 to 7% of GDP. We have full employment, and we have 6 to 7% of GDP in deficit. How? What's our real growth? I don't think it has changed over much in schools. So I'm not pessimistic. I think we can go at two percent real, but between two and six percent, some something needs to fill a gap. So either you're going to have to shrink the deficit, which we know is not possible. We're not going to shrink social security. We're not going to cut military spending, or you can just say for a couple of years, yes, we will let inflation run a little bit hot, and and that's not the end of the world. And again, let me restress this idea. So I initially, I just did in the U.S. I tested the distribution of growth versus the level of inflation in the U.S. since the 19th century, and what right. I found was historically, real growth was highest when inflation was around four um, percent. About four percent. About four percent. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So basically, you have this smile. I mean, from inverting smile, right? So when inflation is too low, the economy is depression; growth is bad. When inflation is too high, you have Argentina-like problems. Like inflation, it's a cost, right? You, you cannot make long-term plans. You have to spend time changing the price. But in that middle, there's nothing special about 2%. That peak is actually closer to 4%. And I was wondering, well, maybe my data is wrong. Maybe i just in the U.S. So I, I rerun it in, in, in Japan, in France, in Germany, and the U.K., and I found the exact same thing. That growth historically, and these are very different economies, different histories, cultures, norms, and all that. Historically, growth is stronger when you have four, five percent inflation, and this is something that I think for emerging market central bankers they know that. If you look at most emerging market central banks, they target three, four percent inflation. Why do they do that? Because they want. They know they want to catch up, and they know that as they catch up, wages tend to rise, credit expands, and yeah, growth is inherently inflationary. So. Going to a higher target, I think, will be quite positive for growth. You could make the case that actually a 2% target was too low.
0: Well, they only adopted it in 2010, around there. And the US, Federal Reserve adopted it. Before then, it was low inflation, whatever that meant. And people had... Yeah, I mean,
1: so in, in the Federal Reserve Act, it's a stable prices. And then the big innovation, if you want, was to define that as a stable rate of growth in the prices. It's dysfunctional, but yeah, oh, you, you, as long as you have a consistent 10,000% inflation, that's that would, that would fit the, the mandate. But yes, the 2% is relatively new. My, my impression is that it was adopted in a way because it was easy, right? Inflation was forming anyway in the 80s, 90s. We talked about in prior interviews, where we talked about the Mexican migrants coming in, the China shock, the excess savings of Europeans. So you had this perfect environment where inflation was forming on its own. So yeah, you could... At times it was even too high, right? Europe could not hit it in the US for six years, we below 2%. But it was more of a convenience uh, than it was a scientific decision. And have, a lot of economists have argued, and correctly I think, that it's probably too low because you can form the zero lower bound trap. It's, it's, you don't have enough of a buffer. And I would also argue that I'm, I would submit the proposition that maybe we don't need an inflation target at all. Because I think about inflation, I think inflation is ultimately the pace of wage growth, right? Because everything, all economic output is labor transformed. So if we put a, a level, a target on the price level, we effectively put a target on, on the wage. And like, why do we do that? Well, that seems very Soviet to me. If we did that to capital, imagine if the central bank said, you know what, no interest rate 4%, that's it. That's Maybe a good number. But they oh,
0: perpetually, they targeted.
1: Yeah. Like why? I mean, like there they, they is, they, they is supply and demand for labor just as well. There are times when labor is scarce. When labor is scarce, you should pay a premium to have it. And right now is such a time because we have less immigration, we have a small generation of Gen Zers in the labor force, a big generation leaving the labor force. So that we should re the value relative value of labor versus capital should increase, so that people can start buying homes again, making babies, having good middle class lifestyles, and so forth. And by, by keeping it low. I think we've, we've done economic harm, that that 2% target, you can think about it as some form of a straitjacket that we put in the economy. So
0: with when you have a 2% inflation target, that means that unless inflation is at 2% or headed to 2%, I mean, if it stays at 3%, we're pretty, it's pretty close to 2%, then the Fed has to keep on raising interest rates. Why do you think a higher target would give the Fed more flexibility? In other words, if the Fed keeps at 2%, what's wrong with that, you know?
1: What's wrong with that is that we're going to have a fiscal problem. Um, (laughs) We will see if we keep deficits at six percent of GDP and our inflation at two percent. So nominal GDP is growing by four. So every two years we're adding two percent to the deficit to the debt to GDP ratio, and eventually more and more of your budget gets eaten up by interest payments. Which feeds on itself a high interest payment in the bigger deficit and so forth. And we're going to have to cut other things because we're going to have to service that. And this is self inflicted. I'm not saying, well, I am saying, so much, but it, I think this should be a, a topic of public discussion. Okay, what is the worst? What is the best outcome? Do we want to? Is I don't know. Some people, there's a good case to be made for price to be low inflation as well. Do we want low inflation, or do we want to have cuts to social security? To me, there's a generational aspect to this. If you're old and you own assets, you would want low inflation and high low interest rate and high asset prices. If you're young, you want high wage growth, low asset prices. So there there is a generational element to this conversation. But I think this conversation should be had in public, and I don't trust that the FOMC doesn't have a a mandate really to to decide for. things that really impact the lives of millions of Americans. It
0: does have a mandate. You're making the case that it shouldn't have the mandate. I guess. So what about the risk, though? And this is, I think, something the Fed thinks about that. If you raise the inflation target, that the long end of the yield curve will get unanchored. So actually, debt payments will cost a lot more for the US government. And... Inflation expectations will get unanchored. Inflation in psychology, as when people's wages go up, they'll spend all of it and they'll borrow as much money as they can to buy real assets because anticipating that they go up in, in nominal value because the currency is being depreciated and inflation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, that certainly has been the experience in in many countries like Latin America uh, comes to mind. And that is when inflation becomes harmful to growth, right? Because it, it encourages holding, uh, speculative behavior, I, would, I don't think we are, obviously, you don't want to get there, right? But we, I don't think we're there. The inflation expectations, as far as I can tell, are very well anchored. We, we issue the world reserve currency. And I, I think the, the inflation that I'm talking about is a good kind of inflation, at least I'm hoping. It's inflation coming for, from wages, from economic activity, not the kind of sterile, excess money printing, spent to politically favored groups. So, this is turning into a policy discussion, which I did not expect. But I think one way to deal with that would be to have very good pro market, antitrust, competition policy to, to make sure that you maximize economic efficiency at the same time. I think you really run into problems when you have inefficient economic structure, money printing, and then that's when, like Argentina, Venezuela, that's when okay, people realize, okay, this is going to hell. Let me buy some gold or get out of the country. But you can have periods of, in Europe, that was in France, the 30 glorious years between 1945 and 1975, all across Europe, in Japan as well, where you had high growth, high inflation, high productivity, low inequality, and generally economies are getting more efficient. And I think if we want to do this Great Reset properly, yeah, I'm using the Great Reset as a political term, with a new generational bargain, and I think this is, that will be the path. I'm not saying it's going to happen.
0: Moving back towards inflation, how do you square what's going on in the US banking system with your inflationary view? Loans and leases in bank credit, so bank loans, have been been flat, I think, since January or February. And by the way that the Federal Reserve posts something called bank credit, and I know you know this, and that includes treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities, which are not bank credit. So in terms of that, bank balance sheets have actually shrunk year over year. So that's, quote, monetary deflation, except it's not actual bank credit. It's just called bank credit. Real bank credit is loans and leases, and that is still up year over year, I think 5%. The rate of growth is going down, but then it's been flat since January, February. And of course, we had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and other banks uh, later on. Banks appear to be either constricting credit or constraining the growth of credit, which are similar things. Inflation typically occurs when the monetary money, money supply expands, but if banks are making new loans or they're not making enough new loans to grow that, that, that seems to be
1: deflationary. Yeah, here I would recommend people look at Linalden's work and you've had her many times on the four guidelines and she makes this important decision between, distinction between credit-based inflation and deficit-based inflation. And and I think you need, credit does not play a big role in this cycle at least point yet. The inflation that we had in in 2022 was not. And yes, there was a little pickup in credit in 2021, but by and large, that was not the big story. The big story was about government spending. And uh, that's one of, I think, one of the reasons why hiking is not slowing inflation all that much is because we're targeting the wrong thing. In, in the 70s, it was. In the 70s, you look at the money supply, it was growing double digit every day. And the moment, Volcker stopped the growth of the money supply, inflation went away. I'm not sure this is the same kind of inflation. It's maybe in the, the inflation that we're experiencing right now is maybe more like what we had in the 40s, where it's not because people are taking more credit cards or companies are borrowing too much from the bank. It's because we have a real resource constraint because of our demography of immigration, of supply chains, and because we have a government that's running a 7% of GDP deficit one we have full employment. But the
0: flatlining of bank loans, you don't think that will have a... Disinflationary effect or not? I mean, eventually,
1: yes. Again, it's kind of part of that long and variable story. Like, yes, obviously, it is more deflationary than it is inflationary, but I'm just saying it's not the primary cause of it. And as long as we have the the fiscal spigot, if you want filling the bucket, yeah, we may have a little leak from monetary, but more water comes in and comes out. We we're, we're still in this inflationary world. But you
0: expect the spigot to stop right next year because the shadow stimulus is going away. Yes. So just, yeah, where are you on the spectrum? Are you an inflationista or not?
1: I remain a long-term inflationista, yes. Short-term, it's difficult because you really have all these cross currents. So you have shelter that's going to drag it down. Everybody knows that. Healthcare that could drag it up. You also have commodity prices, which they're pretty high. Not that far from 100. That, that's my fear, by the way, that we have another spike in commodity prices, and that will kind of bring inflation higher, and potentially that would probably come into recession. But of course, I, I can't predict what the price of oil would be in three months.
0: You can't come uh,
1: But I worry that would be it. Then the I don't know the the drop in spending will really address the, the shortage of labor that we have. Like, for example, the the cola, all well, that Yeah. I guess, yes, it will still demand. eventually. Sure, yeah, you're probably right. But we'll still be short roofers, truck drivers. These things are, you look at the UPS guide, but the auto workers. Really, that, I don't think this story is getting enough attention. We are living at a, an epochal moment where power is shifting from capital back to labor. And uh, yeah, there will be ebbs and flows in that process. But I'm seeing the camp that wages are going to keep growing in the U.S. at a very elevated rate for the next four or five years. And of course, that will be less elevating when there's a recession. But I doubt that we'll see the kind of like negative real wage growth that we have in 2010.
0: So in this new macro world of higher inflation, how do you invest? Bond yields have already gone up a lot. I think the the 10 years, you're above 4, 4%. The stock market's been a tear. So stocks have just really smoked bonds. Bonds have drastically underperformed stocks. Do you think that will continue? How does that impact your asset allocation,
1: you think? For me, the biggest trade that, that I see happening in, in 2024 is rest of the world versus U.S. And it's part of that inflation story, and it's part of that higher rate story. So for 10 years, we had being long U.S. equity, short the rest of the world. was a gift that keeps on giving. You made 10% a year with no long MSCI, short MSCI, long MSCI U.S., short MSCI world X like U.S. And that was just because the U.S. was sucking in capital. It was a place of innovation, we had the shared revolution, we had a bunch of stuff I and mean, a bunch of stories that just made the US a destination for global capital. Now, because the US was a destination for global capital, <laughs> we're importing capital from the rest of the world, that means we have a very negative net in the uh, international investment position. We owe a lot less foreign assets than foreigners or US assets. The US is an adapter to the extent to, for about 16 trillion dollars. Now, when rates were going down, this was great, right? If you have a lot of debt and rates go down, cool, take on more debt. So that I means it's, it's great. When rates go up, it's the exact opposite. So the cost of financing this negative position sixteen trillion at five percent—that's almost a trillion dollar. So that means that these are dollars that will be converting to yen, to yuan, to euro, into dinars or whatever—all the currencies of the creditor nations in the world. And I think that will put pressure on the dollar. And effectively, higher rates are a transfer from debtor to creditors. So at the international level, it's a transfer from the U.S. to the rest of the world. At the same time, we are in a position where the premium for U.S. assets has never been that as big. Obviously, the U.S. has all the big companies. You look at the list of 10 largest companies in the world, I think all of them, but Saudi Aramco are U.S. And the reason they're so big is because they trade at 50 times earnings when their peers trade for much less. So you have this big variation differential. You have this currency channel that's happening, and then even in my economic forecast, I think that's consistent with this. I'm sure you've heard the term the dollar smile, which is the tendency of the dollar to do well when things are either really good or really bad. <laughs> when I read that, everybody wants dollar good, safest assets. When it's really good, everybody wants to buy the Nasdaq. We came from, we're coming from a really good moment when everybody wanted NVIDIA. And I think as the economy slows, maybe it doesn't get to recession 24, but it certainly slows. We get to that valley in the middle of the dollar spine where U.S. assets outperform. It's like non-U.S. assets outperform. So if I had to put one trade for the next 10 years, one equity trade, the rest of the world short the U.S.
0: And can you explain why higher rates are a catalyst for that? Because as you say, the rest of the world is a net creditor to the United States. So they have more do- they have long more dollars than they are short net, But I think a lot of those U.S. dollars that they're long are held by governments. That doesn't, strong dollars doesn't really help them. It's a non-financial agent, whereas rising rates hurts often corporate foreign companies who are short dollars, i.e. they borrowed a bond dollars. Typically, rising rates causes trouble in the rest of the emerging market world. 2014, Indonesia, Thailand, 1997, right? Isn't rising rates typically... Inflict some damage on the rest of the world rather than improving the rest of the world relative to the dollar?
1: So the, the answer is it's net, right? Net international investment position. So, <laughs> net the US debt, yes, foreign corporations are born with dollars, whatever, but that gets netted out. Foreigners own more US assets than the US own. For. So, when rates go up, of course, it's not the same for everybody and there, there needs to be, you know, the, the linkages between, but on balance, the US is going to send more of its assets abroad to services than debt, and than it was on race zero. And then the point you mentioned about Indonesia, I think it is interesting what, why that hasn't happened in 2022. We had what was maybe it was not Indonesia, but may have been Mexico or Brazil. But the best performing bond market in 2022 was one of these countries that you typically think, oh, every time rates go up and dollars like. Oh, it's going to, oh, Indonesia is going to take it, right? Or it's going to be Brazil, it's going to be Mexico. Right? Argentina is a separate massive case. But that was, I think, one of the big surprises in, in, in 2022 was that the typically vulnerable economies perform best at what you would have thought is a horrible time to invest in Brazilian bond, or Indonesian bond, in the Fed going to hike crazy. And to me, that kind of speaks to this change in, in the world. when something bad that should happen is not happening. I think you should pay
0: attention. Or is it just the price of oil was at a hundred bucks, and Brazil does exports a lot of oil? Brazilian stocks did really well from two thousand to two thousand eight when the price of oil went up, and then suddenly when the price of oil stopped going up, it didn't do well. Is it?
1: Yeah, there there is some of that, but you can play the game. Like, you know, why was the price of oil and coal so so much higher? So much higher. In some ways, it was because of policy decisions that that, that were made in the U.S. It was part of that inflation story, and yeah, the I, I, Yeah, they they were sitting on the right. And there's an element of luck to this. I'm I'm not, um, luck is part of investing. I mean, I could say the same thing about 2014. Why did the dollar strengthen 2014? It's because, oh, shale gas. Luck exists. The US was lucky in the 2010s. I think the rest of the world is going to happen to be lucky in in 2023.
0: Absolutely. So if you're what countries foreign markets do you like the most and which do you like the least and i guess I'll start i'll ask you the hardest question first which is china you know if you invest in emerging markets a lot of that is china and i it's very hard to find a stock market that is anywhere in the world that is performing worse than the chinese stock market over the past 2 or 3 years it is the lowest of the low in terms of how shareholders have been rewarded I and mean, the economy's been bad but the market's been way worse than the economy i think so what do you think about china
1: yeah, I think that's been one of the reasons why we haven't seen this, because the story I'm describing is actually unfolding. It's just, it's the same with the gorilla in the basketball court metaphor, right? It's just been hidden by the fact that China is this huge piece of the MSCI emerging market index, and it's done horribly. But if you look at ex-China, the that I love is over the past three years, Turkey, Turkish stocks in dollars have outperformed US stocks. You know, British stocks They had the coup, the crazy monetary policy. No one wants to touch them. The currency is gone to complete hell. But yet, despite that, because they have this 15% dividend yield, and the EPS growth is fantastic, right? Because the currency goes to hell. So that... anyway, the point is the same is so true for Brazil. So the same is so true for Indonesia. So I would think of China more the exception than the rule, but because of its size, it, it's, it, it's hidden this narrative that I'm describing. What thought do I have in terms of, I suspect from a distance that we're having excess pessimism when it comes to China. It's some stories that I feel just seem, don't pass the smell test. For me. One that I keep seeing this headline on Google Drive is China having an even broader moment. I mean, anybody who of understand how China works, and know it's not going to happen because <laughs> The government controls the banks. So <laughs> uh, cannot have Lehman. You know, or the the other one is like China cannot stimulate.
0: Because the, it's gonna depreciate its currency, which will accelerate capital flight. Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Yeah, but uh, I mean they have they have capital controls, they have they have a twenty-five percent youth unemployment rate, they have a right. lot of equal capacity, they primarily borrow in their own currency. China can stimulate. They have not, I agree, you're not to the extent that people thought, but the notion that they cannot simulate, seem, seems, seems quite outrageous to me. Uh, my guess also is we have some very negative news flow coming out of China for political reasons, and maybe, it's a, yeah, maybe it's not as bad. So certainly, it is slowing, the demographics are awful, but there may be a balance sheet recession that's unfolding there as well. So, I would be. But again, a lot of that is in the price, right? The question is, is it going to get worse? And, you, know, you look at the valuation of you know, Alibaba versus Amazon or Baidu versus Google, it's really wide. Maybe China stops being, a, being a, a huge drag because people have already integrated that in their forecast. And then... I don't know. I'm bullish Europe. I know this is something you should never be. I spent 15 years of my life covering European equities and being chronically depressed because of it. But yeah, Europe has actually done very well this year in dollar terms. So I think it's going to play out a lot like like 2002 to 2007, when during corrections EM fell about the same as the S and P 500, and then they rebounded much faster. And then it was EM, it was Europe, maybe less China this time, maybe it's going to be more India. But, and yeah, Europe may be a way to play on, on, on these companies, on, on these regions where you may not want to own the company because of policy risk, but you can maybe play it with European companies that have exposure to this value.
0: And the catalyst for the reversal of the long term underperformance of European equities, which made you so depressed, that is just the underperformance of U.S. growth relative to expectations, relative to European growth?
1: Yeah, so there's this interest rate channel that I was talking about. It's hard for me, honestly, to to come up with a very good fundamental case, long-term case. For Europe, I I tried. One area I would point to the banking sector, I think that's one that doesn't get enough attention. one reason Europe performed so poorly for 10 years is because this banking sector was a mess and we fixed it in the worst possible ways and we had the basels free and that really choked growth and after 10 years of pain, I think a lot of these issues have been solved but the market is not really giving credit. Like you credit that European banks trade for six times earnings, zero, one times hard book. So as the banking sector has more, has processed this issue, I think that's, that is the most optimistic case I can make for Europe. One thing that, that really strikes me. And I, I don't have a good answer for why that happens. But I, if you had told me last year, I would have thought the spreads would have blown up in Europe. Very full bet. We had, we had populists in Italy. We had a really risky election in Spain. We had the end of the CRO. We had the ECB doing point tightening. We had rate hikes with big deficits. Perfect combo for seeing the BTP boom spread blow up and one the other way. And maybe one of these cases, uh, as I was saying, when something bad, that should happen is not happening. It's the, the Silverblades, or the Sherlock Holmes novel. What's going on with the dogs? What? The dog did nothing last night. That was a curious incident.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Greece just got upgraded to investment grade.
1: Wow. I Wow. It's <laughs> of the times. Wow, as soon I as mean, the US keeps going. <laughs>
0: Yeah. But it has to be a pretty big reversal because U.S. growth has been so robust. So you do expect yeah. a slowing in U.S. growth and a slowing of the growth, not a slowing of the economy. So not economic contraction, just growth growing from 6% to 2%, not from 6% to 2%. And yeah, you, so you expect that sometime over the next
1: year. Yeah, yeah, I think in twenty twenty. I was playing with historical data and it looks like it takes about my impression, so I call that the trampoline landing. So, uh, we, so we, we had the we were bouncing back on the trampoline. We have reached maximum height, and then we're going to have downward velocity. And so my, it would take about 12 months of, to get to a recession if there is such a thing, so that would get us to the sum of 24. But again, I'm not willing to make that call. All that I think we can say with a fair amount of confidence is that it will slow down.
0: What about Japan? Interest rates there have been zero for a very long time. And if you think of a country that you know, cannot handle higher rates, you can't imagine one more than Japan that has an um, immense amount of debt. But if they have inflation, you know,
1: what, what makes you think Japan cannot handle higher? Rate? The debt is owned by the central bank, so it doesn't exist. What part of the private sector? I don't think I, yeah. Was okay. it just that the, the public debt? Well, you're going to have what to print,
0: mean, to print if interest rate, you're going to have to print a lot of money to to pay the interest on the debt.
1: But if you'd have to first net. Let's net out the debt held by the BOJ because that, I'm that, you that that doesn't exist. It's just like an accounting trick. Uh, no, yeah, it's, yeah it's, so you're it's, saying that. Yeah,
0: the, the, there's a huge amount of debt, but if it's all owned by the Bank of Japan, it may as well. Not yeah, own. like yeah, it, if, fair, if fair. you're just
1: without the, the stock of Japanese debt, I don't think it's really that much about the stock of U.S. debt, and the private sector is extremely unleveraged in Japan. Yeah, four years it has been deleveraging non-stop.
0: Okay, fair enough. So, do you think? Japan, the Japanese stock market has been on a tear. Are you bullish Japan as well? And do you think Japan can get off zero percent or get off zero percent yield c-
1: control? Yeah, I, I think as a foreign investor, I would definitely play it because the the, the the risk is the reason the stock market has been on a tear is because the yen has come down and the Nikkei is dominated by these big exporters, which are effectively being subsidized by the Bank of Japan through the exchange rate channel, also from the fact that they're just buying their own stock. Every month, it's kind of crazy that this will do that. So the Bank of Japan buys like ETFs on the Nikkei every month. So the risk is that these things stop, right? That the Bank of Japan says, "Hey, worry about inflation. Everybody else is raising rates. I'm going to keep... If that happens, yeah, the stock market is going to the Nikkei is going to hurt. But then the yen would absolutely soar. So if you're a foreign investor, what you lose on the index you will make back on the currency. So in a way, it's a hedge position, right? If you loan yen and the Nikkei, you you have it hedged. So yeah, I I could see it be part of, as it was even in, you know, in Japan performed quite well between 2002 and 2007 as well.
0: Got it. And sticking just with US rather than country allocations, just sector allocations, what do you think about the technology sector, which has richly valued, has been on absolute tear, NASDAQ up with 35, 40% this year. And then what do you think about your favorite holy trinity sectors, healthcare, Energy and financials.
1: Yeah, technology has been my expectation. I, I, I did, you know, I, I thought they would be hurt the most by by the rate hikes. It seems to be finally happening, but yeah, it's extremely resilient. And I, I think that's a mistake I've made, and maybe I will continue to make. Is underestimate the power of these big tech groups, the balance sheet, the captive markets, the political influence that they have. They are beasts. You know, it's, I mean, maybe underweight, but not betting against them, is proven to be very costly. The On the Holy Trinity, the one that worries me the most as a risk for the economy, again, is short-term is energy. I worry that we will see oil prices spike back up and that could throw the economy into the actual recession that will force the Fed to hike at the worst possible time. So I think that is a reason to have energy in your portfolio outside the valuation argument, and, and which I buy. And, but just to hedge against, I think, what is the biggest risk for 2024, which is all price about $100. to still you maintain your weight and energy, the one that I'm getting increasingly excited upon is healthcare. And to me, healthcare is the biggest story of, of the next decade because we really just the demographics, right? Boomers are going to die or they're going to be very sick. And in the US, it's very expensive to die. It's very expensive to age. So-, so you're really bumming us out over here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't make the external tables. Yeah. But yeah, it's so you have this kind of tidal wave of spending towards healthcare. And it's really this year's, the big pharma are for eight, nine times earning their their, their balance sheets are remind me, reminding me of, of big tech balance sheets 10 years ago. Almost no debt, a lot of cash, great cash flow generation. And then I think also it because of the AI paradigm. I, like I, I think people are doing AI wrong. They're doing the same mistake with buying Cisco during the internet. Oh like the, the internet is here. I need to buy the, the Cisco the telecommunication protocol Gold rush, by the shovel. right And, and then of course the, no the best play was not the one that built infrastructure on the internet. it was the one that built business that were based around the internet, Amazon, Google and so forth. Now, if you apply the metaphor to AI, people are thinking the same thing: I'm buying the shovel, I'm buying Nvidia. But chips, are, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a specialist here, but eventually, I think other people are going to figure out how to make good chips. But if you are able to leverage AI in order to improve the core efficient, efficiency of your core business, this is the ones who will reap dividends and to me, it's the healthcare sector. Think about what a health insurance health insurer does, right? It just collects a bunch of data and predicts outcomes. This is the perfect task that AI can do so much better than a human. Same thing with genome sequencing, drug testing, a lot of the administrative tasks. This is this sector is going to be very easy to automate. So I imagine I can see very rapid productivity gains in the sector at the same time as you have this boom in demand and very favorable evaluation and fundamentals, So all this lining up to make, I think healthcare is going to be to the 2020s, while big tech was in 2010s, China was in 2000s, or was the 1990s.
0: I finally want to ask you about the banking sector, but just on the S&P 500 itself, S&P since October has been on an absolute tear. However, as you pointed out, three quarters in a row, year over year, growth in earnings has been negative. And I guess that has been because falling inflation, robust economy, and but it is quite strange that earnings have been falling as the stock market has gone up, which are comprised of the future earnings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that assessment. It's also quite strange that earnings have been falling when we had this immaculate disinflation and 5.8% GDP now and 3.5% unemployment rate. Got to make you wonder what's going to happen when we actually have a bad economy. <laughs> so yeah, part of the fall, of course, is the kind of the basic thing. I mean, I. We had this insane boost to earnings from the COVID stimulus. Like you see that the max 7, like Amazon is taking, it's going to be hard for tech to, there's some normalization of the profit. Now, the question I think going forward is whether we will go back to this kind of 14% profit margin that we had in 2021, which seems to be what the consensus is. and It seems to be the premise upon which rally is based and said, okay, we have three back quarters, but it's going to be better in the second half. Summer is always better in the second half.
0: Yeah, and then, so future earnings expectations have gone up. That's really where the rally is. Because, and the view
1: is that it basically it's margin. The margin is going to go back. My personal view is that this margin thing, it's like the people projecting the all major margin, 0.708 margins on the old companies. No, this was a once in a millennium flood type of event. It was everything, but the analysts thought that with or the, or really all of the banks, right, when they were hiring all the, any, the graduates of business school in six or seven. I think we're doing the same thing with the big tech companies, we're confusing what was a really once in a million flood, which is COVID stimulus, everybody working from home, upgrading their equipment, buying online. That really pushed their margins, pushed the SP 500 margins above their long term trend. Now we are actually reversing towards the long term trend, but then if you get our expectation, we're going back to 14%. I don't see how you can do that if the economy slows, interest expenses are going to rise, and wages are still growing by seven, eight, five, six percent 6%. Where is that margin expansion going to come from? I don't get it. Hmm. All right. So you're bearish on
0: stocks, or you're definitely bearish on US stocks relative to foreign stocks.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And I would say I'm absolutely bearish on. on stocks, at least in the short term, and, uh, and I think this process is unraveling. In the past weeks, has been I, I think there's something psychological about where yields are now, that people start to pay attention and yeah, why, why should I pay 22 times earnings when I'm getting like five and a half in, in cash and real yield of two percent? We've seen two percent. These are numbers that we haven't seen in four years and. Yeah, it's, maybe it takes time for it to sink in because for 20 years, we have this kind of buy the deep mentality and buy every pullback. But at some point, uh, and I think we've reached that point.
0: So one of the sectors in your holy trinity was financials. And financial sector is supposed to make more money as interest rates rise because they make loans at higher yields. Has your view changed since we've had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank as well as First Republic? Or do you think actually sentiment is too negative and uh, yeah, I, you still think they'll... And also, how's your thesis aged of that they'll make money as interest rates rise given that deposit costs are going up? It,
1: deposit, money is no longer free even for the banks. Yeah, the banks have obviously not performed very well this year. As I think that hasn't been the absolute disaster that, that people forecasted. SVB was not the even moment no, uh, and, and then the the a lot of banks are still making a lot of money. Certainly, so the big guys are making a lot of money. Regional banks, ours deposits, are starting to stabilize there. The spreads are still pretty pretty healthy, and I think part of the, not fully, but part of the problem is that we the assets get written down as rates go up, but the li, the liabilities for bank is deposits doesn't get written down at the at the same time. So that kind of creates the illusion that there is this this kind of imbalance, but you can almost think of it as, as especially like a bank like JP Morgan, they're always going to have deposits and they're never going to have to pay anything on them just because of JP Morgan. They have non-interest-bearing
0: deposits for which they pay nothing yeah. but they also have interest-bearing deposits and the composition changes slightly from fewer non-interest-bearing deposits to interest-bearing deposits. And just to I think I knew what you meant, but just to explain to the audience, they own a ton of long-term bonds, agency mortgage-backed securities. The value of those will go down as interest rates rise. And at least some percentage of those, they'll have to mark down available for sale. They'll have to mark the value of those down. But as interest rates rise, the value of non-interest-bearing deposits is very valuable because you should be paying 5%, but you're paying nothing. But that's not being reflected in the uh, balance sheet is being reflected in the income statement. Yeah.
1: But just to, to finish the conversation, uh, of the three of that Holy Trinity thing, this is the one that I'm least excited about. I think risk management, you want to have energy on a secular AI, whatever variation you want, healthcare. My case for banks, now that we have this kind of peak reacceleration, acceleration, yeah. higher rates, I still think that, yeah, I look at the big banks, I think that JP Morgan's is going to be fine, given where they are, but I don't quite imagine them leading the next four months.
0: Yeah, got, got it. Thank you. And also in your holy trinity, it was financials, not banks. So right. of the ETF you mentioned, I think banks and regional banks were a small percentage. So there's insurance companies okay. at Berkshire Hathaway and stuff right. like that. Vincent, thanks so much for joining us. People can follow you on Twitter at Vincent Deluard. Your reports are excellent. You're a fantastic writer with a great sense of humor. What? Where can they find th- those reports on, for StoneX?
1: So the best and easiest way is to become a trading client of StoneX, just ask your sales rep, you're very active in futures, stocks, bonds, ETFs, ADRs, commodities. So that's, this is primarily for institutional clients there. And then if you're more interested in the research, Twitter, go to my Twitter handle, as you mentioned, Vincent Deliard. Under my pinned tweet, there's a link to get a free trial of my work. I give this free trial to everybody, I, I try to watch my DM pretty carefully, I my experience on Twitter has been extremely positive. I, I've received, I've met very smart people. You. <laughs>
0: in my experience in Pops, I met you. That's so totally clear. <laughs> oh, no, no,
1: it, I mean, people, yeah, I think we're excessively negative on Twitter. It's a great, and if you've done right, it's place for great conversation. Sometimes like people bring things to my attention that I'm very grateful and these things can come from all, all sorts of life, all ways of life. So I, yeah, just reach out. And I'll try to take the time and send reports. And yeah, I'll try to keep doing these interviews. I greatly appreciate the work that, that, you know, full guidance has done. I think we had this explosion in podcasts and smart conversation that did not exist 10 years ago and we're all getting smarter for it. So thank you. Thank you, Vincent. And thank you everyone for watching.